0: changing, incomprehensible world, the masses had reached the point where they would, at the same time, believe everything and nothing, think that everything was possible and that nothing was true. These words by Hannah Arendt about totalitarianism could have been written about evangelical cynicism toward reality. This episode will focus on the desire to inhabit an alternative reality of media, and the persecution complex that drives not only white evangelical culture wars, but just as importantly, this persecution complex drives its susceptibility to conservative media. I'll begin with a story. There was a popular book that began this way. Quote, It is said that there are more Christian martyrs today than there were in 100 AD, in the days of the Roman Empire. An estimated 164,000 will be martyred in 1999. The number depended on readers finding it plausible that someone was martyred for their faith every three minutes in the world. This was the introduction to the book Jesus Freaks in 1999, collaboratively written between music trio DC Talk and advocacy group The Voice of Martyrs. It was modeled on John Fox's Book of Martyrs, and this book, Jesus Freaks, collected ancient and modern tales in a package designed for youth consumption. The book followed that audacious estimate of martyrdom with this tale. She was 17 years old. He stood glaring at her, his weapon before her face. Do you believe in God? She paused. It was a life-or-death question. Yes, I believe in God. Why? Asked her executioner but he never gave her the chance to respond. The teenage girl lied dead at his feet. This scene could have happened in the Roman Colosseum. It could have happened in the Middle Ages. It could have happened in any number of countries around the world today. People are being imprisoned, tortured, and killed every day because they refuse to deny the name of Jesus. This particular story, though, did not happen in ancient times, nor in Vietnam, Pakistan, or Romania. It happened at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado on April 20, 1999. Do you believe in Jesus? So, the story is presented this way in this book, Designed for youth Consumption. And this story fell, out, uh, fell into doubt too late for retraction. This whole exchange literally did not happen. This brave martyrdom story was told about another victim as well, and also about a third victim who ended up surviving. Eyewitnesses at the Columbine Massacre suggested that Cassie Bernal's death followed a different exchange, where she hid under a table in the school's library until one shooter found her, shouted peekaboo, and then shot her without querying her faith. But the image of the martyr took root quickly. By year's end, Bernal's story was canonized in this book, in the award-winning Michael W. Smith song, This Is Your Time, and her martyrdom was retold in sermons across the globe. Those who died at Columbine had no say in being used this way. No, their memory was rewritten without their permission. But why was martyrdom or persecution such an attractive fantasy? Because when you're powerful, playing the victim justifies aggression. The theologian Christopher D. Rodke uh, introduced the term reverse, fantasy, rev, reverse revenge fantasy for this phenomenon of Christian media that projects what it actually wants to do. Rodkey uses the 2014 film God's Not Dead as a case study. If you haven't seen it, the film launches when a philosophy professor demands all of his students on the first day of college do something that no student would ever be made to do, that is, to write... God is dead. I mean, obviously, this is ridiculous and we professors would lose our jobs for behaving this way. But it's not unthinkable for a faith that genuinely wants to see every knee bowing to its way of seeing the world. The white evangelical wishes they could reinforce their views and enforce their views, so they project that wish and make-believe as if atheists are forcing secular beliefs on Christians. This is the reverse revenge fantasy. It holds all the power, so it imagines itself as being persecuted, as a way to project what it wants to do to others. That means their complaint against culture can't be ignored. It's often a hint at what they'll do if given the chance. So a persecution complex justifies violence as if it's a preemptive defense. Less than half of white evangelicals say that gay and lesbians uh, face much discrimination today. Less than half believe that Muslims face discrimination. But more than half feel Christians face discrimination. Only 40% of white evangelicals say immigrants, African-Americans, and gay and lesbian people face discrimination today. In contrast, a mere 8% of black Protestants felt none of these groups face persecution. More broadly, while nearly 6 in 10 Americans believe that African-Americans still face a significant amount of persecutions, only a third of Republicans agree. Now, this is the embattled view that sees equality as loss. Now, a few episodes back, I mentioned how white, evangelicals, white evangelicalism's way of reading the Bible literally came out of the need to justify slavery. And so I want to expand on that here. For obvious reasons, the way one reads the Bible can be an incredible tool for constructing an alternative reality. And especially for American evangelicals who want to cast themselves as a new Israel and the Bible literally written for them, it's quite a tool to have a hermeneutic that interprets everything for you and, oh, by the way, says that God sees you as the oppressed but chosen nation, a new Israel, even though as American evangelicals you have more power than anyone in the world. So here's the story of how that hermeneutic comes to become so prominent in the conquest against reality. Just before the American Civil War, the northern preacher, uh, the famous man Henry Ward Beecher, called slavery the most alarming and fertile cause of national sin. Even while down in the South, ministers were preaching a polar opposite message. The Presbyterian minister James Henley Thornwell, for example, insisted that God's providence for America meant that God must approve of slavery, and Thornwell lamented the, what he said was the, the fury and bitterness of abolitionists. Others simply pointed to the clear approval of slavery in the text. The historian Mark Knoll drew on this hermeneutical conflict, insisting that the pulpit became the battleground of a political theology during the lead-up to the Civil War. Today's biblical literalists would probably imagine that the simple what does a plain text say way of reading the Bible is the oldest, trusty method of interpretation. But of course, that's actually just flat out impossible. Prior to the printing press, and the rising rates of literacy in the few centuries prior to the war, it wouldn't have been poss- it just would not have made sense to appeal to what the Bible says. Nobody had a Bible, nobody could have read a Bible. Uh, even entire towns with churches sometimes did, might not have had a Bible, so or at least someone who could read it. So at most, biblical literalism could only really be as old as the printing press five or six centuries back, but it's actually not even that old. So racism ended up disguising itself as a her- hermeneutic, as a way of reading the text and understanding its message. So as our historian Mark Knoll explains, quote, It was no coincidence that the biblical defense of slavery remained strongest in the United States, a place where democratic, anti-traditional, and individualistic religion was also strongest. By the 19th century, it was an axiom of American public thought that free people should read, think, and reason for themselves. When such a populace committed to Republican and Democratic principles was also a Bible-reading populace, the pro-slavery biblical case never lacked for persuasive resources end of quote." So the interpretation, or the argument over interpretation, erupted into a temporary war of arms, but the legacy of the debate, interpretation as a political weapon, entrenched itself for the long haul. The post-war period also saw another innovation of American Christianity. For the first time in the late 19th century, literature began using phrases that are very common today in Christianity such as personal relationship with Christ or personal savior. We simply don't have a record of Christians talking about a personal relationship with Christ before the late 19th century, and even then it is almost nothing. Describing Jesus in very personal terms became very popular in the 1970s and 80s, but it began in this final decade of the 19th century. That's the first time we start seeing these terms in the literature. So folk Christianity bore a selection of tools useful for constructing an alternative reality. The personalization of faith, the literal reading of the Bible, the rejection of trained clerics and scholars, read for yourself, think for yourself, these types of messages. The stage was set for the fundamentalism of the early 20th century, which would eventually evolve into a more clandestinely hostile, but equally reactionary evangelicalism by the 1920s and 30s that would be sort of the forebearer to the white evangelicalism of the 50s through 80s. Conservative media is the most obvious example of disingenuous convictions in alternative reality. And there's so much we could explore here, so forgive me of focusing on the one elephant in the room, Fox News. After decades in the making, Fox News launched in 1996, and certainly tapped into the Christian persecution complex. What we need to understand about Fox News is that, as an apparatus, it eliminates the need for state media. In theory, state media would switch perspectives if democracy were to shift power back and forth between parties. But this doesn't happen with privatized uh, media. Even worse, it's designed to be an enclosed news source. Uh, With its mesmerizing lights and sounds, a cast of characters chosen to please the prejudices of geriatric whites, and the constant scandal mongering it's the trusted voice even if the, the viewer has access to serious news sources. So in an age with more options than ever, every story is a crisis reminding the viewer that they are persecuted and despised, so they seethe with rage, even rage toward their own children and grandchildren. The architect of Fox was CEO Roger Ailes. He got his start in politics early. He wasn't yet 30 years old when he was getting his start in politics and boldly told candidate Nixon, the camera doesn't like you. And Nixon knew that that was true. But he at one point complained, quote, it's a sham a man has to use gimmicks like this to get elected, referring to TV. Ailes' reply to Nixon might as well have been a prophecy of all the havoc he wrought from that day in 1967 until his death in 2017. Ailes told The Crook, Television is not a gimmick, and if you pretend it is, you'll lose. Republican operative Lee Atwater once said that Ailes had two speeds attack and destroy. When Nixon needed a way around traditional media, Ailes designed a traveling roadshow, which mimicked a legitimate newscast, complete with pre-selected partisans who'd ask friendly questions. That's how he learned to mimic legitimate news. Then, in the 70s, he briefly ran a channel called Television News Incorporated. It collapsed after only a year. Before that year, its motto was, get this, fair and balanced. But a frustrated channel director called it something else. He called it a propaganda machine. Rupert Murdoch wanted to try out a new model that was brilliant as AstroTurf. Whereas cable providers typically pay to use a channel, the new Fox News would pay distributors per subscriber. So they had a built-in audience. And so it was that in October of 1996, America suddenly had access to a channel branding itself as, again, fair and balanced. There's an old joke from Freud. One man borrowed a kettle from another and later returned it, but then there was now a hole busted in the kettle's base. So the owner of the kettle was upset, and the borrower leapt to defend himself, screaming, First, the kettle already had a hole in it. Second, I gave it back undamaged. Third, I never borrowed that kettle. Kettle logic isn't aimed to convince anyone on the outside, it reinforces the inside. So Fox News is not biased, or it's only biased sometimes on the evening opinion shows, or it's a counter-bias to mainstream media. It can be crushing the ratings and at the same time totally outside the mainstream, crushing the enemy fleet or the last lonely soldier braving, bravely facing the onslaught of liberal media. And the viewer needs to identify with this duplicity and deception. The network's self-styled us-against-the-world attitude merges seamlessly with the Christian persecution complex. Consider, for example, the way that the annual imaginary war on Christmas works. Normally the first flare lights up briefly in the summer when some Fox News host highlights a corporate memo, perhaps, you know, altering the holiday season policies. By November, the viewer is reminded daily of the liberal secularist rejection of Merry Christmas and Christian iconography, preferring instead happy holidays and pluralistic imagery instead. So by the time Christmas rolls around, The viewer believes that there is an all-out war on Christmas, on their traditions, and that the world is collapsing. This is something that happens every year. It is the imaginary war on Christmas every year. The persecution complex is served up every 24 hours on the evening news, every night. Every story is imaginary, but the rage is real. Now, remember, Fox News uh, CEO uh, Roger Ailes got his start in the Nixon administration, and the tactics of that crowd help us make sense of the conservative media uh, tactics today. In particular, think of the way that cues work, verbal and visual cues. A cue lets the viewer desire white supremacy without realizing it consciously. For example, Nixon advisor Lee Atwater once admitted that when they couldn't use the N-word anymore, what they did was they shifted to what he called abstractions, things like he named states' rights or cutting taxes, with the foregone conclusion that African Americans would get hurt worse than white people by these policies. Or, there's another quote showing how abstract cues work from another Nixon guy who explained it this way, Quote, The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? When we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but we could get the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. End of quote. This is how the abstract hue works. It funnels into a vortex of misinformation, desire, and rage. It justifies oppression by helping the oppressor believe that she is the oppressed. In effect, any violence is justified when you think you're on the defense. And it helps to follow a faith in which all things end when God himself comes back to slaughter his enemies and cast them into hell forever and ever. That's just, uh, you know, uh, uh, just, just the bonus, right? Now, in early 2018, A concerning Marist poll found nearly 7 in 10 U.S. adults had either not very much confidence or no confidence at all in the media. 4 in 10 Democrats and a staggering 9 in 10 Republicans reported these views. Not very much confidence or no confidence at all in the media. This is a terrifying rejection of reality as such. And next time, we'll look at the ramifications for society when we no longer share any sort of commitment to a common reality.